traditional dating etiquette goes something like this. A boy asks a girl out, picks her up in his car, takes her to dinner and maybe a movie, pays the tab, makes the first move, and if all goes well, calls or texts the next day to tell her he had a nice time and to make plans to see her again. I've seen this story play out in movies, novels, self-help books, magazine articles, and in real life for the 32 years I've been alive. As a heterosexual girl, the prevailing wisdom says that the less you do, the better. Try to look pretty, maybe flirt in subtle ways, but for the most part, sit back and hope for a guy to notice you. Wait for him to call or text. Hold off on having sex if you can. The message is clear. You'll be rewarded for your restraint. Men, on the other hand, are expected to take action. They're taught to go after what and who they want. On a chilly March afternoon, I decided to talk to people in downtown Iowa City, near the little Midwestern town where I live, to see if the dating etiquette I grew up with was still alive and well. The first few conversations I had ended in a pretty similar way. If a man and a woman are on a date, who do you think should pay for dinner? I like to pay for dates because it usually makes them feel nice and special. I like the man to offer to pay. I think it's kind of an old tradition. Just kind of being a gentleman, it's kind of the right thing to do. You would think you'd be the one asking her out, so like you should pay for it. But the longer I talked to people, I also heard a lot of this. I don't think it's fair for the guy to always pay. I don't think that there is anything that dictates that the male has to pay. Being a feminist, you should have gender equality and not like have double standards. I am unlikely to go on a date with a guy. But I guess in general, I would rather split it. It just makes things equal. You're listening to Thread the Needle, a podcast that explores where feminist ideals meet the realities of women's lives. I'm Donna Cleveland, a journalist who's trying to come to terms with my values as a feminist and the dating etiquette I've grown up with. Here, I'll share what I've learned about the surprisingly short history of dating. I'll point out discoveries along the way, and at the end, I'll attempt to answer the question, does wanting a man to pay for dinner make you a bad feminist? Before we jump in, I want to point out that this episode is an exploration of traditional dating etiquette in American culture, which has historically focused on heterosexual couples and has excluded many people's experiences who fall outside of that definition. However, the history of dating in America that we're about to explore affects all of us, although in different ways, and therefore will be relevant to everyone listening to this episode. So with that, we'll jump in where this story starts with Laura Moses, a writer who lives in Los Angeles. Laura was pondering the do's and don'ts of dating one January morning in 2016 on her way to brunch at Blue Jam Cafe, her favorite spot in West Hollywood. She was meeting her friend Ben Schwartz. You may recognize him as John Ralphio from Parks and Recreation. For as long as they'd been friends, Laura and Ben had been swapping opinions about their love lives. When Laura dumped someone via text, he was... <laughs> totally appalled and convinced me that it's absolutely not okay. <laughs> At brunch, Ben told Laura how he'd offended the date he'd brought to a party the night before. She had to leave early and he just basically said, okay, bye, and then didn't walk her to her car. Um. And he got in trouble. She was really upset and he was like, is that a thing I'm supposed to know? And so their comedic guidebook, Things You Should Already Know About Dating You Fucking Idiot, was born. While the two crack their fair share of jokes throughout the book, it has a serious message. Hookup culture and online dating are leaving people feeling unfulfilled and lost. 
but soon they found themselves facing an interesting challenge. In an era of ghosting and booty calls, how could they take a stand without sounding old-fashioned? A lot of traditional dating etiquette is very specific to how men should act versus how women should act. Ultimately, she and Ben made their decisions based mainly on their own experiences. In their book, anyone can ask anyone out, and a guy isn't necessarily the one who should text the next day. They do advise guys to walk their dates to the car and to pay for dinner when taking a girl out. She said, we're hearkening to our caveman past, where a man would do things like fight bears and hunt for food in order to protect women. While this past is admittedly patriarchal, she said, acting it out today doesn't have to be a bad thing. I think it goes back to it's just a gesture of kindness and more of a symbolic gesture. A man opening a car door for you or paying for the check or writing first the next day saying like, I had a great time last night. It's not because you need him to do any of those things. They're just nice. I left the call with Laura feeling half convinced. Were we really channeling our inner caveman or did these dating traditions and expectations come from somewhere else? As I dug into the research, I found that Laura's comment about cavemen really alluded to the age-old debate between nature and nurture. If we were acting out a caveman past, that would suggest there's something intrinsically natural about men paying for dinner and opening doors. You could, for instance, make the argument that we're mimicking the animal kingdom's process of sexual selection as laid out by Charles Darwin, who said males compete for the best mate and females are choosy and stave off male attention. But then there's the fact that one of our closest animal relatives is the bonobo. This species of monkey is matriarchal, and females are the ones who initiate sex most of the time. So as you can see, it's hard to draw a conclusion from nature. So next, I turn to nurture. I gave historian Beth Bailey a call, who researched and wrote a book on the evolution of dating called From Front Porch to Back Seat. Bailey said a lot has been written about the role of biology in dating rituals, but that this can be problematic. I don't tend to go with the biological explanation. <laughs> People in the 1950s would have said that women biologically are chaste and virtuous because it's essentially important to women to guard their virtue and to guarantee the legitimacy of their children. That's not what we see today. Essentially, we often find examples in nature that support our prejudices, she said. Looking at the incredible variety of ways in which dating has been practiced in the United States over a period of 100 years, um, you know, I, I don't think that paying for dates is, is a purely biological legacy. Instead, since the invention of dating, she's seen social, political, and economic factors play a huge role in shaping the way we think about courtship, relationships, and marriage. So let's start at the beginning, at the turn of the 20th century. Before the days of dating, people courted each other. The young man would spend time with the young woman, and it was presumed to be heterosexual courtship and leading toward marriage, in a situation where they were chaperoned and they were not entering into the money economy. They weren't going to anything that was paid amusement. In this model, things stayed pretty tame between men and women when they spent time together. The standard model of calling is that the young man would come and be invited in and that he would sit in the parlor or on the front porch or wherever and uh, it'll be served lemonade and listen to the young woman play the piano and to speak with her mother. It was all very much supervised and chaperoned. In a certain way, women had more power under the courting system. The right of initiative was the woman's or her family's because she was inviting the man into her home. 
That power was limited, however. A woman's role was very well-defined and rigid. Women's reputations were at stake. So for a woman to be seen going to a man's house, that would have destroyed her reputation. At the turn of the 20th century, expectations of what respectable young women could do was about to change drastically. What was the biggest factor driving this change? The industrialization of America. Young people began migrating to cities following new job opportunities. With this new lifestyle, courting rituals quickly became impractical. There were respectable young women who were working in department stores or factories and had roommates and had rooms, but they didn't have the kinds of space where they could respectably entertain gentlemen callers. And young women living with their families, sometimes in tenements, sometimes in crowded circumstances, there was no place to entertain like that, and it, it just wasn't plausible. So increasingly, it was women and men in the working classes who started courting outside of the home and started to patronize these places of paid amusement, which were not quite respectable for middle class and upper middle class women and men at that time anyway. So dating comes from the working class. This leads us to our first discovery. Dating afforded women more freedom to socialize outside the home. So what made dating different from courting? One was the right of initiative. If a woman's domain was the home, then Bailey said a man's domain was the rest of the world. Because dating involved going out into the public sphere together, a man was supposed to do the inviting. This leads us to discovery number two. Men inviting women on dates is literally based on the notion that it's a man's world. The other reason men did the inviting is that dating required money, and at the time, men were the ones who had the majority of money. The young women who were working in the early 20th century were paid terribly, and the only way that many of them got any way to go out and have fun was by being treated. So men did the inviting not only because the world was seen as their domain, but because of basic etiquette. It would have been terribly rude for her to go to somebody and say, would you please spend money taking me out to eat? We've made it to discovery number three. Women's lack of money played a huge role in the early dynamics of dating. If you dig deeper, the dynamic of money and dating goes even further. Little did many of us know, but... The term dating came directly from prostitution. That was the term that young women would use to talk about their assignations. They'd say, I have a date. And it came from prostitution because people clearly understood as dating spread that there was a financial transaction going on. Which leads us to discovery number four. Dating was really built around this equation that goes man plus money equals woman plus what? And everybody pretty clearly understood that what went into that what was sex of some sort. And I don't mean sexual intercourse. It could be flirting, it could be holding hands, it could be um, acting like you know he's the most charming person in the world. But quite often it was also, I spent X dollars on you, I don't even get a kiss in return. So at that point, the, the term coming from prostitution showed how uncomfortable some people were with the notion that courtship was something that was now put into the money economy and that young men had to buy young women's company. Before long, however, dating became mainstream. The term date showed up in the Ladies' Home Journal in, I think it was 1915, in quotation marks. And that was its entrance into middle-class respectability. By the 1920s, 
dating was pretty widely accepted as the standard practice in the United States, from you know, backwoods, rural communities, all the way to the most cosmopolitan cities in the country. And the conventions of dating were spread by movies, but also by magazines and advice books and even things that students read in classrooms in high school. Now we've covered where dating originated from, but since its establishment, dating has gone through many transformations before coming full circle to more traditional practices like the ones Laura and Ben prescribe in their book. First came the rating and dating system. Up until World War II, dating was kind of like a game. Whoever could get the most and best dates won. Bailey explained that during this time, which included the Great Depression, resources were scarce. Men won popularity by having a nice car, nice clothes, and by spending a lot on dates with popular women. Women won the dating game by appearing to be in high demand and by being seen out with popular men. You were supposed to have as many dates as possible. Advice to women in college would say things like, never accept a date when they don't ask you at least two weeks in advance. And if you don't have a date on Saturday night, you should turn off the light in your room and sit there in the dark so nobody will know. At the close of World War II, a new trend emerged of early marriage and monogamous dating, otherwise known as going steady. Because 16 million Americans served in the war, most of them men, heterosexual women were left without many people to date. There were also fewer marriage prospects at the end of the war. Bailey wrote about a national scare over what people were calling a man shortage. While there were roughly 400,000 American war casualties, the media also clung to this idea that foreign women were stealing American men. In fact, by 1946, almost 100,000 American GIs had married foreign women. Magazine articles at the time fanned the flames of American women's anxiety, giving them advice about how to snag a husband and avoid becoming a spinster. Men, on the other hand, wanted to get married because of the experiences they had at war, Bailey said. They'd been forced to grow up quickly and see a lot of violence, and were therefore more likely to value human connection over superficial dating rituals that were largely a popularity contest. So we go from dating as many people as possible to the idea that you are essentially pretending that you're married. We end up with a fundamentally different system in which everybody sees the goal as going steady. And it wasn't that the 11-year-olds who started going steady in fifth grade weren't necessarily planning to marry their steady, although alarming numbers seem to think that they might. But it was this process of serial monogamy. You don't talk to other people. You always know what the other person's doing. You talk on the phone every night. You plan ahead for your dates. A fundamental shift, but it was still called dating. In an instructional video shown in schools in the 50s, a young man named Jeff gets dating advice from his parents. You've played the field for two or three years, Jeff. Now you begin to settle on one girl. Later in the film, Jeff's date, Marie, gets her hair curled by a friend who tries to convince her to go steady. If you take my advice, you'll get your man and you'll go steady. Do you think we're old enough to go steady? Well, how old should you be? Oh, you don't know how wonderful it is. I never have to worry whether I'll have a date. And it's so good to know that you belong to somebody. This trend significantly lowered the age of marriage. In 1890, the average marriage age was 26 for men and 22 for women. By 1951, men were marrying at 22 and women at 20. 
By 1959, 47% of brides were getting married before the age of 19. Instead of marking the end of youth, in this era, early marriage became a part of youth culture. Media coverage promoted this lifestyle by visiting sororities and taking glamour shots of college brides. Around this time, an obsession around gender roles emerged. Up until the mid-20th century, the qualities associated with being a man or being a woman were considered inherent. But suddenly, masculinity and femininity were traits you had to acquire. As women increasingly worked outside the home, the roles of women and men were suddenly not as clearly defined. From her research, Bailey found that people were becoming genuinely afraid of what a society might look like, where women lost their femininity and men lost their masculinity. Advice columns in popular magazines and etiquette books jumped in with plenty of advice. They told men to be powerful, dominant, aggressive, and ambitious. A 1953 short documentary uploaded to YouTube gave boys examples of how to successfully make their way through puberty. His interests were mainly masculine, and his success at sports made him sure of himself. He could take girls in his stride, just as he did games. Real men must be at home in the world and provide for their wives and children. Bailey remembers this dynamic around finances playing out with her own parents. I remember being a child and watching my mother slip money to my father under the table when we were in a restaurant so that it wouldn't embarrass him by her paying directly. On the flip side, women were supposed to be dependent, submissive, nurturing, and centered in the home. To be called aggressive was to render you undateable. Examples of female aggressiveness and masculinity included asking a guy out, ordering dinner for yourself at a restaurant, failing to wear makeup or paint your nails, and my favorite, challenging a man's intelligence. Bailey quotes a 1940s advice book, warning, be careful not to seem smarter than your man. It's one thing to be almost as smart, but to be or seem smarter, that is taboo. An alumni of Smith College in the 50s recounted a song she and her classmates used to sing on campus. You're sharp as a pinpoint, your grades are really ten point. You are Dean's Sophia Smith. But when a man wants a kiss kid, he doesn't want a quiz kid. Oh, you can't get a man with your brains. Through the era of the 1950s housewife and early marriage, it was expected that you wouldn't actually have sex before married. That was about to all change. The sexual revolution of the 60s and 70s pretty much exploded that. Bailey said that the sexual revolution seemed to come out of nowhere to people at the time. But when she studied Kinsey reports over the decade before the sexual revolution, she found that behind closed doors, people weren't actually following the no sex before marriage rule. By the time the 1970s rolled around, not only were sexual conventions in question, but the women's lib movement meant all notions around gender roles were also undergoing a revolution. There was a significant period in the 70s and 80s when the question of who was going to pay was something that was not at all assumed. And it was based on that notion that if one gender is always going to pay, is assumed to have that right of initiative and assumed to have the responsibility for paying, that it creates a power dynamic that wasn't welcome to a lot of women during that period. Since the 1980s, women and men have found themselves completely free to date however they please. And while this offered new opportunities for women, Bailey found that it led to a new form of anxiety. Suddenly there were no rules and no etiquette to rely on. 
you could sleep with someone, and that didn't mean you were married or that the person even liked you. What followed is that people suddenly had nostalgia for the past and found comfort in adopting some of the old rules they used to abide by. She found an article in Mademoiselle from 1986 that summed it up well. Dating was probably never fun, but it wasn't navigating shark-infested waters either. If you wanted sex, you got married. Society required it. It was not optional. Men pursued women ardently and openly. Women pursued men ardently and covertly. The game was clear to all players. So what has history told us about dating conventions? Well, we can safely say they're based on old-fashioned and patriarchal ideas that it's a man's world and that men are the ones who make money. We've also learned that taking initiative was not always considered a masculine trait. We've also learned that dating has its roots in prostitution and that it implies a transaction of money for sex. While most people don't look at it that way today, Bailey says it does still assume that men want sex more than women and are willing to court women in order to get it. Lastly, we've learned that we've wrapped up a lot of our ideas about proper dating etiquette with proving our masculinity and femininity. Bailey is a professor at Kansas University, and she's been surprised to see that Americans are embracing more old-fashioned dating ideals again. She said she first noticed the shift in the classroom. When I talk to my classes today, there's a, an extraordinarily consistent assumption that if it's a heterosexual couple, the man's going to pay, and that he is going to be the one who invites. Now, if they become a settled couple, then they may negotiate a little bit about who's going to pay in what circumstances. It's sort of gone back to what we used to call traditional dating, and we thought more or less that we had surpassed that set of expectations. Since many, if not all, of the assumptions on which dating are based are no longer true, why would we return to this model? Bailey is not sure, but she has some ideas. It's just really hard not to know what the rules are. And if every interaction has to be negotiated and talked about, it's exhausting. It's a better situation for people to talk about their expectations and to be clear about what's acceptable and what's, what's desired. But it's also hard. And I think that going back to what we think of as traditional was easier. And it doesn't necessarily carry some of the same connotations among today's youth that it did among the women in the early 1970s who said, I'm severing that relationship between you paying for me and you expecting something for me. I'm independent and I'm going to prove it. Even though women are not necessarily comfortable calling themselves feminist, I think that they have accepted a great deal of sets of assumptions about women's equality and don't feel that they have to prove as much anymore. So what's the answer to the original question? Does wanting a guy to treat you to dinner or hold the door make you a bad feminist? My sense is the true feminist position is that we're aware of these things and that we can talk about them and we can make our decisions, uh, preferably in consultation with our various partners. So just like you can be a feminist and be a stay-at-home mom, you can also be a feminist who likes a man to pay for dinner. The important distinction is that you know you have other options as well that are just as valid. Bailey said if we decide to still go by these traditions, we just want to make sure the person we're dating is on the same page. It does change the power relations if one person is always paying for something. So it's not clear exactly what the power relations are. And I think that's the problem. People don't know exactly what somebody is expecting to get in return. It might simply be the sense if we're talking about a man, it, it makes him feel like he's in control. It makes him feel more masculine. It, it makes him happy. That doesn't necessarily have to take away from the happiness of the person that he is paying for. Uh, knowing what that trade-off is or what he gets out of it compared to what you get out of it, it seems worth the conversation. 
What I was hearing from both Bailey and Laura Moses is that by paying for dinner or holding a door, we're role-playing. I was now able to see that most men dating today are probably not assuming the woman is less than or helpless, but are simply making a symbolic gesture of masculinity. What I still have a hard time accepting, though, is that when the majority of people reinforce these expectations, it begins to shape reality in ways that we might not like. For example, most of the straight women I know have found that waiting for a guy to make his interest clear can save us from a lot of disappointment. In most of our success stories, the man did the pursuing. That's how I got together with my husband, Tyler, and that's how most of my straight girlfriends' serious relationships started. The problem with this self-propelling system is that it's hard to break out of, even if you decide that's what you want to do. The reality is, following along with our designated gender roles in dating often makes our lives easier. But Bailey said we shouldn't take that as proof that these rules are inherently correct or natural. We function in communities, and communities develop a set of understandings and develop systems that work. And so if your experience and your friend's experience is that it works better to wait and have someone show interest, it's functional. She pointed out that even if a man does take initiative, that doesn't necessarily protect women from disappointment. Showing initiative, if it means texting at midnight, that's initiative, but it doesn't necessarily show a lot of thought and preparation and attempt to win you over. It doesn't mean that it's not welcome. <laughs> it could be really welcome, but you know, it's not the same thing as saying, would you like to do this? I know that you will like this group, or I think you might like to see this movie, or something along those lines. People enter into these circumstances with different goals at different moments. And you know, it doesn't mean that you have to write off somebody who texts you at night, but it's not the same thing as someone who's put a lot of thought into how they can woo you. For those who decide to break the mold, they might experience some fallout. A guy who's tired of paying for every meal may find that his date takes it personally if he asks her to split the bill. Or a woman who pursues a man may learn the hard way that there was a reason he hadn't been asking her out. I can see a future for the next generation of women, or perhaps a couple of generations down the line, in which people of all genders feel equally free to pursue whoever they're interested in. Until that day, if you're a woman who wants to ask a guy out, perhaps it's good to think of this as a skill that you're going to need to practice, and that men got a bit of a head start on. You might feel awkward at first, and you might not always read the signals right. But from what Bailey's gathered from her research, your advances might be more welcome than you'd expect. I think we all like to be wooed. I just think that men ought to get wooed sometimes as well. I'm Donna Cleveland, and you've been listening to Thread the Needle, a monthly podcast that explores the meeting place between feminist ideals and the realities of women's lives. This show was edited by me with production help from Cody Olivas and scoring by Mira Oberdyke and Taylor Ross. The episode artwork is by Chosie Titus, and a big thank you to Molly Bloom for being my mentor. If you enjoy the show, please subscribe through the Apple Podcasts app and leave a review. That will help other people who might enjoy the show find it as well. If you have a story you'd like to see featured in a future episode, please email me at podcast at Look for the next episode of Thread the Needle on Wednesday, November 6th.